Good morning. My name is Cindy. I'm on staff here as one of the pastors. And uh, let me start by saying happy January 22nd. I don't really know what that, just thought I needed to say that to you this morning. Um, as we get ready to dive in, I have, I'm just curious about something. How many of you, by show of hands, love roller coaster rides? Oh, I am going to pray for you. Um, my family, some of my family love roller coaster rides, and they've talked me into riding some of them. And I have to tell you, me, not so much. I'm not really, I'm not really into them. Um, that whole um, out-of-body, out-of-control, upside-down, twisting through uh, the corkscrews, only to be taken a thousand feet straight up in the air and dropped at 500 miles per minute straight down. No, oh, Chris. Mm. We're going to, let's just bow our heads right now. We're just going to pray. Um, what's interesting to me is while I don't like the physical ride, mentally, when life starts serving up unexpected, out-of-control things, that's what it feels like to me. Anybody else feel that way? It's like, and let me tell you, I don't like it. Um, last, towards the end of last year, I felt like there were just these numerous things that started happening to me. They were out of my control, which I don't necessarily like either. Um, and it just felt like one thing led to another, and I found myself living in a lot of what-ifs, which led me to feel like I was on several roller coasters at times all at once. And just because the year 2022 ended, it didn't mean that all of those roller coaster rides stopped at that point. Some of those have carried into 2023. And I'm finding myself at this place in January, on January 22nd, still needing to kind of learn some things of how to ground myself, to recenter myself. Um, when you struggle with anxiety or panic attacks, you know how important it is to learn techniques or tools that will help you take a really deep breath, slow yourself down to where you can kind of assess what, what is it that I need to be tending to, what's my body speaking to me about, what are the things that need to be taken care of. And by learning those tools, they help ground us. And these same methods apply to our spiritual lives. Because when life feels like one wild roller coaster ride, it's really easy to start having doubts of who God is or wondering why he's not healing us or answering our prayers. And it ends up affecting our faith. We start to pull away and we start to move and this distance happens. And sometimes we just need to slow down and ground ourselves in his truths. And that's, in a way, what this series in Acts has been doing for us. It's, been, it's what it's been doing for me. It's taking me back to where there's some reminders, some grounding truths and reminders to where I can help my mind slow down enough and recenter and to remind myself where my identity is and how to begin to live the rest of this year. These reminders and acts have, have taken us to a place where not only have we, are we remembering what the gospel is all about, but who it's for, how it began to move out, and the people that God was going to choose to do the very thing, that, both men and women in this. And at the center of all of it is Jesus. If you'll turn with me to Acts 9, which is where we're going to be this morning, 
This passage is often referred to as one of the most important conversion stories because of who it involves and the dramatic transformation that we've come, this pivotal moment when the gospel would begin to reach into the Gentiles, and that's where we come in. But it didn't happen, I don't believe, without a, a roller coaster ride. Turn Acts 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, it's really important to gain context of who Saul is and to study his backstory just a little bit. He's a deeply devout Jew. He was born in the Roman city of Taurus. His father is a Pharisee. So Saul has grown up all of his life living in and studying the Old Testament law and all the Pharisee rules. He's highly educated. Prayer and meditation would have been a huge part of his daily routine and the study of scriptures a lifelong passion. Saul was a man certain of his theology. But the words that we just read paint a picture of a violent man convinced of his own righteousness, his own understanding of the truth. He knows that there's no way that Jesus can be the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for because the law itself states anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. So by Jesus dying on the cross, how then could he be the Messiah? This man that died on the cross would be cursed. So he's not believing. So it means nothing to Saul. He thinks Jesus is there threatening the law. So Saul is believing by upholding God's law and persecuting these people, the people choosing to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that this is the most natural way by persecuting them to show his devotion to God. And remember, we first learned of Saul during Stephen's trial in Acts 7. Luke tells us that Saul himself gave the approval for the stoning and was actually present while it was taking place. He watched as Stephen died. So now Saul is continuing on. He's received permission from the high priests to arrest and extradite those who are choosing to follow the way, believed to be connected to when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he's learned that these, these followers, Jesus' disciples, are, some of them have begun to scatter. Some of them have gone into Damascus. And so he and his men have set out on their mission. Now, Damascus is about 135 miles to the north-northeast of Jerusalem. It's about a week's journey. So he's got plenty of time to come up with a plan. Have you ever done that? You're like, man, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going in with full vengeance on this. And that's what he was doing. He's got a plan. He's communicated it to his men, and he knows what they're going to do and how they're going to do it when they get there. As he neared Damascus on his journey... Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground but when he opened his eyes, he could not see, he could not see 
could not, he could see nothing, sorry. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, this is how this story, this is how I remember this story to look with this image. Saul's on the ground, his hands are up in front of his eyes, shock and horror on his face. And I would have said to you at that point as a child, I would have said, Saul, this is how I interpreted it. Saul does something bad, God gets mad, blinds him with the light. Saul believes, changes his ways, his eyes are open, so he gets a new name, does good things for Jesus to the end. That's how I remembered it. But when I was asked to speak on this particular passage a few weeks ago, the adult, and with the discernment of the Holy Spirit, I actually said before I started, God, would you, before I start reading, would you just reveal or remind me something that I, maybe I forgot? Would you reveal something new? And sure enough, it did. It happened. Um, it's believed that this encounter on the road happened at midday when the sun was at its brightest. It's not the sun itself that's blinding Saul, like I believed as a kid. It's the revelation of Jesus himself. After all, he is the light. Saul was seeing the same person that Stephen had called out to. When Stephen was dying, he had a vision and he saw Jesus. So now Saul, although Saul did not see that when that was happening with Stephen, and so now Saul himself is seeing the very same person that Stephen, Stephen saw. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, as a kid, I would have heard that Jesus' tone to be really harsh, possibly angry, sounding more like my parents when I did something wrong. But if we choose to see God through this lens of love, then this tone has a stronger possibility to be one of, more, of a more loving sound and not condemning. Remember, there's another time that he says someone's name twice. Martha. Martha. He's not doing this to condemn. He's doing it to get their attention. And he's doing the same thing here with Saul. The importance of this moment, here's Jesus who's been crucified, resurrected, ascended to heaven. He's speaking directly to Saul. In one blinding, unexpected moment, Saul's whole world is turned upside down, inside out in this encounter. Because the way had a voice. There's a presence, and this presence is light. And what this light is doing is beginning to weaken and to crack open that law and that truth that Saul had been holding on to so tight. Jesus, the risen Christ, is God. Jesus is the Messiah, the very one that Saul has been waiting for. Can you imagine the confusion in Saul's mind. Can you imagine the roller coaster that he had to have gotten on during those three days when he can't see? There had to be confusion. After all, he believes he's not persecuting God, as Jesus has said. He believes he's defending them. So all of this confusion, all of these thoughts had to be happening, and it had to be one wild emotional roller coaster of terror and horror and shame as the realization of what Saul has done is mixed with the wonder and the awe and the amazement as to who he is, who is talking to him in this encounter. Saul had to be questioning everything. One writer sums it up this way. He, had, he who had intended to enter Damascus like an avenging fury 
was led by the hand into that city, blind and helpless as a child. But the story continues. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Taurus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. There's not a lot written about Ananias. There's no real big backstory um, to study here. What we know is that he had evidently was not a refugee from Jerusalem, that he was an actual resident of Damascus. And when I first read this, I, had, I just had to laugh because while Ananias is clearly a devoted follower of Jesus, he wants to walk in obedience, he has strong faith, he's also very human. Did you catch it? So, listen, Saul has been infamous for what he's been doing, and Ananias is aware of this. He's aware of Saul's reason for coming, for coming to Damascus. So when he hears Jesus tell him what he wants him to do, his first response is to politely remind Jesus of a few things, as we often do sometimes. Like, you know, maybe Jesus had forgotten, maybe he hadn't been introduced to Saul yet. Um, it's kind of like, hey, Lord, I, I've, heard, I've heard some things. Uh, I'm not sure if you know who this guy Saul is, but it's not good. Uh, are, you, are you aware of what he's doing? I'm just saying. I think individuals like this in Scripture, they give me permission to be human and very real with God. Because we see Jesus in this moment gracing Ananias' limited understanding. He's revealing to him his purpose for Saul. And this bolsters Ananias' courage. He knows that there's a plan. So there's no need for him to fear in doing what Jesus has asked. And so off he goes to the home of Judas, who lives on Straight Street. Because if you're going to get right with Jesus, it's where you're going to go, right? Straight Street. Okay, verse 17. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Do you see the change in Ananias? Someone who was different than who Ananias was, someone different from him. All of a sudden, he was, he was questioning just moments ago, do you know who this man is, God? And now we see him touch Saul restoring his sight while at the same time, notice what he calls him. He calls him brother. The fear removed. Nothing else is written about Ananias that we can find, but his wisdom to do as Jesus asked has become legendary. This was his moment of obedience and trust, and he didn't get it wrong. And I believe Saul was not the only one that was changed on this day. 
so my question this morning is, what does this do for us? What does this reveal about who God is? What are we supposed to take away in this moment? I mentioned about studying Scripture um, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Asking a question like this, what does this reveal to us, can often open the potential for us to discover something new or reminds us of something that we've forgotten or maybe we've misunderstood. And during this series, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit and how important this relationship is in our lives. Because if, we're trust, if we trust in Jesus, then we know the Holy Spirit lives within us. But that communication looks different for each one of us. Just going to take a little side note, here, side note here for just a minute. It took me a long time. There was, there was some um, uneasiness and some fear early on in my Christian walk about this Holy Spirit thing. And I t- I've had to grow into that over the years. I've had to learn that it's not always this audible, verbal, complete structured sentence or a five-page report that's going to get downloaded to help me understand Scripture. But a lot of times, it's this pressing on my spirit. A lot of times, it's questions that come. And the questions lead me to want to study more. And that's where understanding comes. Back to the question at hand. What do these scriptures reveal to us? There's some simple um, truths that came to me when I was studying this that I want to share with you this morning. They're grounding truths to help us when we need to recenter or to get off of the roller coaster. And the first one that really stuck out to me was that God is all-inclusive and no one is out of his reach. No one. No matter who a person is, the condition of the hearts and minds, the sins that have been committed, the things that we've done to others and the things that have been done to us, we are not out of his reach. We saw that last week when Susie was teaching about Philip and the eunuch, and if you've not had a chance to go and engage in that sermon, I would really encourage you to do that. It's online. We also see it today that no one's out of his reach, that Saul's known as a persecutor. He's a murderer. And yet Jesus' plans for him changed the course of the gospel reaching the Gentiles. And because of this this encounter and this moment, you and I are living in the result of that moment. No one is out of his reach, out of his love, out of his grace, no matter what our mind may be trying to tell us on the roller coaster. Another grounding reminder for me was that we find our truth in Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in an argument with someone where you, were just, you just know you are right, they are wrong, and you're going to go to any ends of the earth to extremes to prove it? Oh, come on. I know that you have. And then you only turn around and discover that indeed you were wrong, and then you have to do the whole I'm sorry thing and all, all that good stuff. I believe Saul was well-meaning. I don't think he just woke up one morning and said, I'm going to go be an evil an evil, violent man today. He was believing in the Old Testament law, but that law had no space for Jesus. God was doing a new thing and saw even with his eyes wide open, was blind to what was right in front of him, and he couldn't see it. He was completely missing it. And we can so easily do the same thing when our pride demands that we stand our ground We're in our understanding of what truth is that we're holding to because we just know we're right. 
And what I'm learning in my own life is that with the discernment and the guidance of the Spirit, Jesus' light can dismantle or deconstruct what we think we know, what needs to be let go of. And in doing this, the scales fall off of our own eyes, and we see the truth as it is in him. And that's what enables the renewing of our minds. Listen, I would rather Jesus shatter whatever I think I know in the here and now than to find out later I got it wrong. Saul, later known as Paul, his name change does not happen in this passage like I believed it did. That's your homework for this next week. You have to figure out why. God did not change his name, as I thought in my little Sunday school girl mind. But Saul later writes that immediately following his conversion, he went to Arabia and he was before returning back to Damascus. Because after his conversion and baptism, he needed some time and some space for reflection and communion with God. He had to rethink and relearn the scriptures. He had to, he had to learn some new things and receive some new understanding and some new theology. And as Christ's followers, may we never reach a place that we stop learning. We have a value here where we say everyone is welcome. And we strongly believe that. No matter what each of us brings with us, our different beliefs, experiences, teachings, we believe that if we can agree that if Jesus is the risen Christ and he is at the center of everything, which is another value, then that enables us to be able to sit with each other to learn from each other, to ask questions and listen. That's what it's all about. Because if we don't learn to do this, then the chasm of us versus them will only continue to exist and not only exist, but continue to grow wider and deeper. And as Jesus followers, that's what we're called to do. So if we open ourselves up to the possibility that there's something new, something different, that maybe Jesus is wanting us to see or to learn or relearn, then our lives become filled with his truths. And from our knowledge, from that knowledge, we expand and we, it deepens how it shapes us, how we live, how we love, and it shows us where we can join him in his kingdom work. The last reminder I want to share with you this morning is the word meanwhile. It's actually the very first word of verse one. Meanwhile, it means at the same time. It's mentioned 189 times throughout scripture. And this word connects the story of Philip and the eunuch to Saul and Ananias, where we see how God is orchestrating how the gospel's moving out. We see it in, in Philip and the eunuch. But meanwhile, there are still those who are in danger those who are choosing to believe in the gospel. And meanwhile, in this moment, leads us to witness how one of the greatest persecutors is about to encounter something incredible. Meanwhile, it leaves the door open for something more. Have you ever had a moment when the angst in your heart propels your mind to get back on the roller coaster, wondering, does God even care? Does he see me? Why isn't he doing anything about my situation? This word meanwhile is the proof needed to remind us that we can trust that God is always working and he's doing it through events and people and experiences that overflow, overthrow our human expectations. 
Because when we attempt to calculate the future on the basis of our normal experiences so that we can feel like that we're in control, these calculations leave us unprepared for the appearance of God. It negates human plans in the most unexpected ways because his ways are not our ways. Five years ago, in the early onset of some, a lot of shock and disbelief in the unexpected death of my husband, it was not humanly possible for me to grasp the meanwhiles that God was orchestrating. But as I have lived these last five years, there are people that I have met that I didn't even know on the day that he died. There are books that I have read I didn't even know existed that would bring understanding to grief and pain and suffering. There are places that I had to visit in order for me to find myself and regain and understand my, who my identity is in. And all of this is orchestrated by the one who sustains us in his strength and teaches us as long as we're breathing, there is more. There is always meanwhile. When Saul asked Jesus, what do you want me to do? Jesus didn't reveal all he had planned. He only gave Saul the very next step. Saul wasn't ready, just like I wasn't ready for the meanwhiles that God was working on. There's a reason he doesn't reveal the whole picture. It's where our faith comes in. All Jesus is asking us to do is to choose to trust him in the very next step and to trust him in the meanwhiles. As we get ready to wrap up this morning, I couldn't think of doing anything better to ground ourselves or recenter ourselves before we step into the week ahead of us than to come together for communion at this table. The story of Saul is a beautiful reminder that we cannot save ourselves. We have a Father in heaven who has always known that we would be in need of a Savior, and he sent his son, who sacrificed himself in our place. His love and his grace are given and extended to each one of us, and it's more than enough. He's more than enough. The disciples, after Jesus ascended to heaven, lived in the truths of what they had witnessed while they were with him. They weren't waiting around. They focused on his kingdom work while living in the promise of eternity. Eternity, where one day we'll worship forever, we'll laugh, we'll eat some amazing food, and all the questions and all the emotional roller coasters, the tears, the pain, the sorrow we experience, it will be no more. But meanwhile, there's more. We have his presence with us now to ground us in truth in the form of our relationship with the Spirit who guides us in the work still needing to be done, and to those still waiting to know his love. So we're going to do something a little different this morning. As you come to the table, and I'm going to ask all of you um, to come down the steps and join us at the table this morning, you're going to notice that there are larger elements than usual. Um, we have some large rolls um, and bigger cups of juice. That's intentional. The goal this morning is to just take some time to come together, to come to the table, get an entire roll. By the way, gluten-free rolls here, gluten-free rolls over there, um, and, then the, and then the juice. Come and get an entire roll and some juice. Take it back to your seat. 
And as the team just plays some instrumental music for a little while, have some time with him. Allow your mind to maybe slow down a little bit. Take a really deep breath. It's one of the most, it's one of the fastest things that I can do to begin to allow myself to slow down when I'm on the roller coaster. It's just to take a really deep breath. Give yourself some time with him this morning as you eat and as you drink. Allow this time to be holy and to be sacred. Recenter your minds and your hearts on what is true, letting the fullness of who God is embrace you. It's the reason we're doing larger elements. Experience that filling. Jesus is at the center and he's everything. If you're here and you've been looking for him, maybe this is the morning that you make the decision to trust and follow him. It's really simple. All you have to do is just make the decision to believe and he'll do the rest. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Because you're going to need to remember in the midst of the roller coasters and all the things that life hands you, you're going to need to remember. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. It's only 22 days into a new year. And I don't know about you, but I constantly need that recentering. So come join us at the table this morning and spend some time with him. The table's open.